We're into our 18. Look how good he moves that camera over here. Son of a gun. Wherever I go, he goes. Let's see what you do with this over here. Oh, your family has come to see you. You remember Bart, your older son? Jesse, the illiterate fag. No. Oh, yeah, my favorite podcast is the Sick and Wrong Podcast. Cause it's a very good podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a funny, 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 funny show. Sick and Wrong Podcast is a wonderful podcast. It's a miraculous podcast. It's like the best podcast in the whole wide, wide, wide world. Good evening. Welcome to Sick and Wrong, the world's source for antisocial commentary. I'm one of your hosts, E. Simon. Hi, I'm Kate Rambo. Hiya. Kate Rambo, this is uh, my reluctant birthday show. Why is it reluctant? Happy birthday. Because I'd rather not turn 49 tomorrow. What, would you rather be dead? Is that what you're saying? No, You'd I'd rather, rather be just... dead than with me. Thank you. That's a lovely compliment. No, it's not that. I'm just, I'm now one year away from 50. So? It's good to get That's older. It's not something to be excited about. I'd fucking rather be 50 than 21 again. Oh, you, you'll see. You're about to be, what, 39? Because I'm uh-huh. 10 years older. You're going to be one year away from 40. And 40, more or less... After 40, birthdays are meaningless. No, not for girls. Not for girls, they're not. And I like birthdays. It's a good, you know, it's good to be alive and watch your enemies die. And that's all I want. I don't know. I mean, I think after 40, I've I've learned there's just no reason to really be depressed about them because you're already old. You're just old. You're not old. And just embrace it. But, you know, this, this will be the first birthday we've actually spent together. Have we? Yeah, I don't think we've ever spent a birthday together. Like physically spent together. We've celebrated on Zoom, but I think this is the first time we've ever been together for both of our birthdays. Yeah, which kind of sucks because I'm absolutely skint. But I've got you something amazing that might make you cry with joy. It'll make you grateful for a birthday. Yeah, well, we'll have to see. Um, Unlike you, I'm not a fan of birthdays. I think they're absurdly overrated. Like, why celebrate the day I slipped out of my mother's clunge okay. without any choice of mine? It's not like I was like, nah, I'd rather stay here. It's slimy. It's warm. And now I got to deal with the horrors of daily existence. All right, you little birthday bitch. <laughs> How about we recreate when your ex just didn't just let the day pass by without even a remembrance and how upset you were. I wasn't that really she did, a... You were upset. How upset that she didn't even do anything for you. How about we just do that? No, I wasn't upset right? with her. I, I wasn't like, didn't start a fight. I was just like, wow, you, because I mean, she literally put zero effort into it. But you're just saying I don't want zero effort. And there's a lot of mixed signals no, here, Aquarian. I just don't look forward to birthdays. But you kind of have to, you have to put some kind of effort into it. Yeah. Like as your, you know, your significant other. Um, the people who I don't want to put any effort into, into it is my coworkers. That and I was about to say when male male friends bite other male friends, um, it's it's like half a gay. It's a well, little it's a little gay. It's gay bumpy. Well, that's the thing. Like like I never liked birthdays even as a kid. Just never really been into them. Kind of think they're overrated. But most guys, I think, tend not to really give a shit about them. Obviously, you know, their wife can cook them dinner or 
buy them a nice bottle of booze or something like that, that that's fine. Or their friend could give them a shot. I think that's, that's fine. But women, they like celebrating their birthday. Some women even do like a week-long celebration. Uh, I was about to have a rant about this. I do hate the woman like, it's my birthday week. It's like, unless... I want to point out my mum was in labor with me for a week. So technically, I do have a birthday week. My mum went into labor with me two months early on February the 14th. And a week later, I came along. So I have a birthday week. But unless that happened with your mother, you don't have a birthday week. You have a birthday that you share with millions of other fucking people. Well, I just think it's a cry for attention. I just think it's like, like just very narcissistic. Just, you know, I mean, I do. Like, I obviously acknowledge... You know, my girlfriend, or my your birthday. Like, I, I'm gonna do something special for it because I know it. Because I know you really enjoy birthdays, and I do. I do enjoy celebrating like your birthday. I just think of mine. It's like just keep it understated. I, I feel like any guy who's really into birthdays is either gay or a pedo. Oh, I grew up with a lot of women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, coworkers. That's the worst. When they like, find I out. really hope they don't even notice it. Like, that's one thing at my, my current job. There's one girl who will purposely make a big deal out of it. And I'm hoping she gets COVID and stays home the week. <laughs> but, um, you know, my, my current job, they're not too overzealous about it. I think they kind of are like, oh, happy birthday. They'll do it on Slack. But my previous job, holy shit, at the Scientology gig, I mean, they would decorate your cubicle. Then, you know, there's this one girl, her name was, uh, she was Bulgarian. Her name is like Danya. Or something. Donya. Yeah, and she was working for HR, but then I don't know why she moved to becoming like a production coordinator on our team. And she was just so cheery. Always wore yellow, always wore orange, and just cheery. And I think she just couldn't understand why I was like, I just am not into birthdays, and I, I wear black all the time. And she just it just Can was you cut- something she didn't understand. You've got to cut her some slack, day. She has escaped the regime. So it's kind of like coming out the concentration camp and being alive. Like, you're going to be like Maud. You're going to be like kind of happy to be alive, aren't you? I mean, Escaping she was young. She was young. Yeah. And I think she moved here. It's a like, better life here. Come but on. She, but she moved here, I think, when she was like in junior high. No, in my like mind, 12. she's escaped like by the claw, by clawing her way out of there. Uh, I remember t- sitting down and being like, you don't need to decorate my cubicle. Not everybody enjoys birthdays. Why? You can just ignore it. Everyone yeah, enjoyed birthday, David. I don't know what happened. Well, I do know what happened to me later off, and I was quite happy. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you can hear me you. bitching more about my birthday on the second show, along with uh, details about uh, uh, Kate Rambo's birthday festivities. Yes, that yeah, I have we'll, we'll be talking about that. Um, I did get an early birthday gift this year, actually. So this is one thing that did excite me for my birthday, something I've been wanting for, I'd say, around like 25 years. Like since the early 90s when I found out about it. The Day the Clown Cried, an infamously cursed film, is finally going to be released in June 2024. That's 52 years after it was filmed. Um, A lot of people might not not know much about this, uh, this movie. I found out about the movie because Howard Stern was absolutely obsessed with it in like the late 80s, early 90s. Um... But in the ranking of like cursed or banned films, you know, there are lots of striking stories about like Apocalypse Now. A lot of things happen on that set. Uh, the Man Who Killed Don Quixote or Poltergeist, actually. Poltergeist, there's a lot of oh, lore yeah. associated yeah. with that. But those films are all eventually released, varying degrees of success there. But that's not something you can say about The Day the Clown Cried. So this is a movie 
uh, directed, produced, and he stars as the main character uh, by Jerry Lewis. You know, MDA, Telethon, Jerry Lewis. The film tells the story of a German circus clown named Helmut Durk, who's imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp for mocking Adolf Hitler. And then he's forced to lure children to the gas chamber as his punishment. Yeah, this is, and, and Jerry, Lew, Jerry Lewis didn't write the original script, but he rewrote the script. Can I just say, any film that ever pops up where there's one man who is a producer, director, and main actor is nine times out of ten absolute fucking trash. It's a warning sign to well, me. Even if this is trash, I've been dying to see it. Um, so he plays the role of uh, the clown helmet dork, and the cast includes uh, many famous French and Swedish actors. Cool. So the film in general was a disaster. Not surprised it was never released. Um, so the producers, along with Jerry Lewis, decided not to release it. In fact, Jerry Lewis vowed that the public will never see this film because he was ashamed of it. Well, I hate Jerry Lewis, so like, let the film be released. Fuck him. He's dead. See, this is what I mean. You get older, you watch your enemies die. It's fantastic. Well, in 2014, he changed his mind, and he gave a copy to the Library of Congress in the United States. Uh, his only condition was that no one could see it until 10 years had passed. So we're in 2024 now. Nice. And Jerry Lewis, that self-righteous fucktard, sexist fucktard, is dead. So now we'll finally get to see it. Okay, well, I'll buy you tickets in June and we'll be front row center for it. So this week on the show, we're going to chat about what's now considered probably the most cursed film in history, The Day the Clown Cried. But before we get into all of that, let's chat about something a bit more entertaining than a concentration camp clown. Just a bit, just a smidgen. Uh, The sick wrong patron. So people, if you listen to this morally reprehensible program every week, every Monday, you're, you're, you're dying to turn on your podcast player and play sick and wrong, then all we ask is for you to sign up to the patron, go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe to Second Show, and give us some support. It's only five bucks a month, that's it. You get access to Sick and Wrong Second Show. Uh, it's a full second show we do every week. And this week on the second show, we're going to chat about me bitching more about my birthday, um, how we celebrated it. Also, uh, we're going to a special event about the McMartin Preschool Satanic Panic event that we covered, God, I don't know when we covered that, like a year ago, two years ago? Not that long ago. About a year ago, probably. Yeah, coming up. No, I think, was it not while I was here? It was while I was here when I just... You might have, you might have been. Maybe. Yeah, you might Anyways, have been here. But anyway, it was a preschool in Beverly Hills that was accused of... Um, of uh, uh, molesting children and satanic rituals and things like that. So Hyena Gallery, a really cool gallery in uh, Burbank, is doing a special event. And there's going to be guests, hopefully, that show up that were involved in the case. I think it's the son, Ray, who was first accused because he kind of went into obscurity after. He had to change his name and leave the state. Well, we'll have to see. Uh, but we're going to chat about that on the second show. You don't want to miss it. $5 a month. You get access to Sick and Wrong on Patreon, as well as the, the uh, official Sick and Wrong Discord, a, uh, a lovely group of people on there that you can interact with. Um, as I said before, you don't even need to sign up for Patreon now. You can just go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the second show. Uh, it's really easy. You already have the podcast app on your phone. A couple different ways to support us. 
And uh, I also posted the first six years of Sick and Wrong on Apple Podcasts. Just do a search for Sick and Wrong Podcast, and uh, you can check out the archives. Patreon.com slash Sick and Wrong. We do appreciate the support. So let me play this quick promo, and then let's discuss the greatest birthday gift a bitter old misanthropic Jew could ever receive. Hi, guys. Stuart here. I'm just calling in to get this off my chest. All you listeners out there, why are you not signing up for the Patreon? Seriously, these two fine people do the show next to having a regular job, and you don't feel the need to support them. So sign up to the Patreon today. You're not helping a Jew through college, but through his midlife crisis. And Kate is packing her shit to live in California. Both of these things are not cheap. They give so much and ask for so little. So do it now and keep the show going. Dee and Kate, you're doing a great job. Love you guys. Stuart out. So before we get into like censored or banned films, I do feel it's like kind of important to mention the pre-code era because I said this term to you recently and you were like, what's that? What does pre-code mean? And I like all these old films. So back when talkies first like sprang onto the screens, there was a very small window, they say from around 1927 to 1934, where films weren't like very much being censored. They ca- they were, but they weren't, right? Well, I don't think there was even like a governing board to even look at it. No, but like they were still films. things you couldn't show and things you couldn't do. But it was very like loosey-goosey. Yeah. yeah. So up until July of 34, the films, you know, they're totally raucous. They're openly suggestive. There's sex of both interracial and homosexual kind. There's drug taking, abortions, swearing, violence, lots of booze, lots of partying. And these are all depicted on the big screen before it became banned for decades. Hollywood became a den of vice and immorality and the jazz age saw a post-war sense of nihilism because who really wants to fucking live forever, right? After a big war. The economy's booming. There's new widespread birth control. It meant more widespread sexual freedoms. It meant the cities, they're frolicking. But those humble folks out of towns, they're not so liberated. And this would all clash in the early 1930s. Some of Hollywood's golden age of stars got their start in this era. So we've got Clark Gable, Cary Grant, John Wayne, Bella Lugosi, my favorite film noir goddess, Barbara Stanwyck, James Cagney, and he stars in my favorite pre-code gangster noir movie called The Public Enemy, Gene Harlow. I mean, there's just so many of them. You just got to open the pages of Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon issue, issue number one, and you're going to see a smattering of the the stars of the pre-code era. Like, think Siegfried Follies and all of that. Do you remember uh, Edward G. Robinson? I think I know his He face. always played a gangster, and he always did that. Say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was from that era, too, like 1930s. So beginning in late 33, and it gets put into force in 1934, American Catholics, who were representing the Catholic Church, it's always fucking the Catholics, they launched a campaign against the immorality of Hollywood. And under pressure, the studios brought in a code to determine what should and should not be shown on screen. But it's also going to be a code that promotes traditional values. How boring. I'm sure the Jews who run Hollywood is like, give them a fucking bone so they'll shut up. Exactly. It's affecting sales. You know, we want money back. Throughout the decades, though, this code has been broken and pieced kind of back together each time a film proves so shocking or such a big hit. And I'm not talking about that bland spunk water scene in that terrible movie <laughs> called Saltburn. I'm honestly so sick of everyone ranting on about Saltburn. It's fucking shite. 
I'm really talking about all the classics and I'm sure everyone who listens to Sick and Wrong, they already know about such films as like Freaks, which only became available in 1963 in the UK despite being released in 1932. I also have to point out here that the UK is very, very, like very harsh about movies compared to America where you guys are like, whatever, let it roll. Yeah, the UK, I mean, you guys are still a nanny state. Total nanny state. Yeah. The very sexy David Hess movie, The Last House on the Left, which is a director, uh, directorial debut by Wes Craven. 1972 was banned until the video Nasty Era, which started in 1982, led to the Video Recordings Act of 84, where it was banned again all throughout the 80s and the 90s until 2002, when it was finally given an 18 re- rating and released with 31 seconds of cut. Look at the, they kept in the sexiest scene. You know the sexiest scene. Is that scene the in that bathtub movie? scene? No, in um, Last House on the Left, when it's like piss your pants. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. David Hess that is was so sexy. sexy. He's like the sexiest Greek who's ever walked this earth. The uncut film was finally released in 2008. So you've got Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I spit on your grave. Maniac, which is my favorite Carolyn Monroe movie, and it was also her birthday recently. And I posted saucy pictures of her in a like a gold crochet bikini on my Instagram. If you want to see some more of Carolyn Monroe, these all received similar bannings. And Maniac was actually only just passed uncut in its entirety in 2022. Didn't they remake Maniac, though, with uh, Elijah Wood, right? I think so. Didn't we try to watch it? And I was like, turn the shit off. <laughs> like was most I... movies you watch. Yeah, well, I love the original Maniac. Why would you want to recreate it? Yeah, the original's way better. Like we said before, America is less of a nanny state. Although they did ban John Waters' Pink Flamingos because Divine eats dog shit, and he does it wonderfully, might I add. Yeah, but did, did Pink Flamingos, didn't they show a dude's butthole? I think they show up. Yeah, yeah, they do show. It's been a while since I've seen Pink Flamingos and like Hot Take Here. It's not my favorite John Waters film, but of the time, it's fantastic. Blue Minds, great film. The fact that all these films are now being re-released and reclassified, it shows that times are thankfully changing. But there is one film that wasn't banned by the heavy hand of an irritated censor and the director himself banned it. Yeah, the director uh, vowed that no one would ever see it because he was so ashamed of it. Um, it definitely uh, was a personal insult to, to him, The Day the Clown Cried. And we're talking about Jerry Lewis here. But that's just an example of one of, many, one of many films that were once thought lost forever or not fit for public screening. Uh, one of the best-known lost films is The Passion of Joan of Arc from 1928. After being lost for years, a copy, just a random copy, was found in a Norwegian hospital in the 80s. And the film is now considered one of the most important historical film artifacts. I think it's actually on YouTube. Uh, London After Midnight, which is a 1927 horror film directed yeah. by Todd Browning, starring Lon Chaney. Todd Browning directed Freaks, is still a white whale. People have never seen it. They say the last copy was destroyed in a 1965 MGM vault fire. Yeah, there was also a huge fire that destroyed tons of silent movies in the 20s, like the first ever Cleopatra with Feta Barra that was just burnt and nobody's ever seen it. Well, a lot of films were also destroyed in 1965 yeah. in this MGM vault fire. Fire, but um, some other films that have not yet screened because of filmmaker stipulations include 100 Years, starring John Malkovich. Uh, the film's from 2015, but has been placed in a time lock safe, which won't open until 2115, 100 years after the film was made. Okay, is that just to create controversy around it, and it's going to be a shit film? You know, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure why they locked this one up. I mean, if people, if you want to weigh in on it, give us a call. Let us know. But it's just, I was looking, I was looking at it, and it's just the filmmaker said, 
I don't want anyone to see this film for another hundred years. Yeah, he's just doing that so in a hundred years. Ma- maybe time. controversy. Yeah, totally. So one of the most legendary lost films of all time is Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind. So this is a uh, like a satirical drama film directed, co-written, co-produced, and co-edited by Welles. We really took control of this entire movie. And it was posthumously released in 2018 on Netflix after 48 years in development. Yeah, because of Half Peter, a century. Peter Bogdanovich would have had his sticky fingers in it too. Films not only stars Peter Bogdanovich, it stars John Huston, Bob Random, Susan Strasberg, and Osha Kodar. Um, this was supposed to be Wells' big Hollywood comeback. Yeah. Remember he uh, you know, purposely moved to Europe? Yeah, and he became a full-on an alcoholic. An expatriate and yeah. became an, uh, an alcoholic. But then he decided to come back to Hollywood. They started shooting this film in 1970 and went for about six years. And then he would work intermittently on editing the project. I mean, he was, this is when, you know, that famous uh, commercial he was doing, he's just loaded. Oh, I love that. We so should po- you should post that on the Sick and Wrong Instagram sometime. I should do that. That was yeah. great. A good throwback Thursday. Um, but he continued to work intermittently on, the, on editing the project well into the 80s. But there were like financial issues, legal issues, political compli- complications. So it just never saw the light of day. It was never, never screened publicly. And despite Wells' death in 1985, there were several attempts, mostly from Bogdanovich, made it restruct- yeah. reconstructing the unfinished film. But it wasn't until 2014 that the rights were acquired by Royal Road and the completed project was overseen by Bogdanovich and producer Frank Marshall. So the story is kind of a film within a film, and it follows the last day in the life of an aging Hollywood film director, John Huston. Fucking love John Huston. uh, Yeah, seemingly as autobiographical. And he hosts a screening party for this unfinished latest, his unfinished latest project. And the film's kind of shot in like a documentary style you know, with rapid cutting back and forth. And it's in black and white, 8 millimeter and 16 millimeter. And so it was supposed to be a satire of like the passing of classic Hollywood and of the avant-garde filmmakers of Europe into that new 1970s sleazy Hollywood. I kind of get this because do you remember John Huston's so good in Chinatown? Oh, he's amazing. Yeah, so it definitely makes sense, you know, out of the old and like, in with the new. only like a few years after Chinatown. Too. Well, when it started, yeah. yeah. But John, John Huston's hella old in Chinatown. I'd be like, why are you picking the oldest actor in Hollywood to be in your film? It's I know take he worked perfectly years. though in uh, well, well, in this, yeah, but yeah. Um, the people have uh, you know claimed that this would be the holy grail of cinema, and it does hold the record for the longest production time in history at forty-eight years. But so, the other side of the wind eventually came out November second, twenty eighteen, on Netflix, and uh, it, to critical praise, had its world premiere at the seventy-fifth Venice International Film Festival. You know, it's kind of like just because something takes 50 years to make doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be good at um, Chinese democracy. I've had this on my like to watch list for ages, but I like I definitely have to be in the mood for this. Yeah, I, I, I would like to see it. Actually, I've never watched it either. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know, films that have taken so long to finally be released and there's a lot of expectations there and a lot of them kind of fall short. I'm assuming the day the clown cried will will be a big disappointment. But I really want to see it. Yeah, I think it'll be hilarious. So it's a controversial Holocaust film. Um, it was shot in 1972, never released due to many issues surrounding the production. It's never been made available in any form. Um, but it does have like mythical status in the uh, global film community. So many people have been obsessed with this film, dying to see it. And since, you know, 
over the years, I know they released seven minutes on YouTube, and then there's this like 31 minute outtake that came out of the movie with no sound, as you could see. Um, but the project now, in its semi unfinished form, is set for a June screening due to a stipulation from Jerry Lewis. You know, several years before he died in 2017, he gave a copy to the Library of Congress with an agreement, a signed agreement, a contract that could not be screened in any capacity until 2024. Um, though it has since been reported as a rough version, it's not right. like the final, they never finished the script. So The Day the Clown Cried is about a washed-up German circus clown, Helmut Durk, uh, who's played by Jerry Lewis. Uh, he's sent to a Nazi concentration camp after mocking the Fuhrer and the regime in a drunken rant. And while he's in prison there, um, he's given the burden to entertain the Jewish prisoners, notably children, before they're sent off to die in the gas chamber. And you know he, he can't refuse it. He has to deceive the kids while he leads them to their death, you know, disguised as a clown and having to hide everything that he feels on the inside. It kind of reminds me of Life is Beautiful. Yeah, kind of. And then that's what's interesting because Life is Beautiful came out years later to, what, won Oscars. Oh, um, I couldn't remember. What's he called? Roberto Bernini. Bernini. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember, remember he his... climbed across the chairs. Yeah, and I remember his Oscar speech. But I, oh, I mainly remember him for Down by Law, the John Musk movie, where he's like, you scream, I scream, we all scream for I scream. That's all I remember you for, Roberto. Well but done. Life is Beautiful is like a deeply what, moving and tragic story. It's supposed to be. It's a 1997 I, film. I thought it was kind but, of boring. But a similar idea. It's like a father trying to keep his kids' spirits up by making their Nazi imprisonment seem like a game. Yeah. And it, yeah, it got seven Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, and it won three, including Best Actor. So there's a lot of potential here for this story. I just think maybe the timing wasn't right. <laughs> you know, maybe a little too soon. <laughs> Um, this is the best part. This is what I've been wanting to see forever since I heard about it on Stern. The film ends with a notoriously cringe-inducing scene of Jerry Lewis dressed as, you know, as the clown, leading all the laughing kids into the gas chamber. But overcome by the grief of what he's being forced to do, he stays in the gas chamber with all of them as they're killed. The Pied Piper of Auschwitz. <laughs> but he's a clown. So... I mean, the premise obviously made the film very controversial at the time. I mean, it was only, what, 30 years after the Holocaust? Mm -hmm. um, less than 30 years after the Holocaust. But it did attract a lot of attention. I think if well done, this could have been huge Oscars and, and accolades for Lewis. Uh, but everything didn't really go as expected. And uh, there are a lot of problems with the, with the director, the actor, and the financing. So let's get into this, this film here. So way before this film had any you know, mythic folklore like, like it, it does now, there's so much controversy regarding it, well into pre-production. So th this comes from an article uh, about the film in uh, Mondo Video that kind of went into the description of trouble production. Like you can search about, you can search The Day the Clown Cried, you can read a lot of different accounts, but no one knows exactly what's happened. It's kind of lost in the annals of time. But this is what I could piece together. So in 1971, Jerry Lewis met a Hungarian film producer named Nathan Waksberger. This was after a performance at the legendary Olympia Theater. Waksberger had owned the rights to The Day the Clown Cried since the late 60s. And he offered Lewis the role as, a, as Helmut Dork and directing duties, fully finance 
uh, with assistance from a partnership at Europa Studios. Now, keep in mind, back then, like Jerry Lewis was regarded as a comic, like a comic genius in France and parts of Europe. They loved him there. And do you know who wrote the film? So this guy had the rights, but who wrote it? Uh, so it was written by, uh, what's her name here? Um, it was written by a woman. Yeah, it was written by a woman named Joan O'Brien and, her, and a guy named Charles Denton. Okay. Yeah, so that's what it was first scripted on. So after like the, uh, so, so Lewis got into it. Lewis like, you know, traveled um, to uh, Germany and Poland in 1972, checked out concentration camps in Auschwitz and Dachau. He uh, shed 40 pounds. Whoa. Just eating grapefruit. Holy That's shit. It. Um, also, I think he was uh, rather severely addicted to uh, Percodan at the time. <laughs> he so absolutely was. Maybe that curbed his appetite a bit, you know. Uh, but the, most of the movie was shot in France. That's where the exterior was done. Right. So, yeah. So, he, after several days in Paris, the production then moved to Stockholm, Sweden for principal photography. And they had a, like a cast, an international cast of famous people at the time in the film. Ingmar Bergman started Harriet Oof, Anderson. Gorgeous. Helmut Dork's wife. Uh, Anton Diffring, was, uh, who played a lot of Nazi heavies in those movies, was uh, the commandant, commandant Colonel Bester. Um, the second assistant director, Jean-Jacques Benou, uh, were going to direct two of the most incredibly uh, inter- uh, acclaimed international films of all time, Diva, 1981, and Betty Blue in 1986. I absolutely I think every girl has a chunk of their heart that is with Betty Blue once you've seen it. Not men, girls. I can't tell you how many times I used to watch that movie. It's three hours fucking long. And I'd be like, you know what, this afternoon, I'm watching Betty Blue. Oh, Zog. Oh, he loves her. I'm sure I'm butchering his name. Is it Beignet? Um, well, yeah, that's how you pronounce the Perhaps pancakes. <laughs> I'm not <Beignet>. sure. <laughs> uh, but anyway, there are a lot of famous like star power attached to this movie. So it is kind of surprising how it fails so spectacularly. Uh, but complications just plagued the production, you know, as soon as they were in, in Stockholm. Uh, producer and money man, Nathan Waksberger, just fucked off to the south of France. Oh, a Hungarian yeah. going back on his word. That's shocking. Jerry Lewis said in, in his 2005 memoir, you know, uh, his producer just skipped town without paying for the rights and other expenses. Checks bounced and Lewis struggled to close the gaps. According to the memoir, he personally lost $2 million on the film. That's usually why films flop and fail is just when funding completely pulls out from under you. Well, film equipment ended up going missing or never even showing up. And Lewis knew that the film was definitely in trouble. I mean, financing was drying up. And then he discovered that Waksberger's ownership of the story rights had expired. Like, he never even had full ownership. Right. So then did it go back to uh, the lady and the man who wrote it? Or is it now in the public domain? Um, I still think there's copyright uh, conflicts over it. But, okay. Um, so the movie, as I said before, is first scripted by Joan O'Brien and Charles Denton. And the film was in production when according to the 1996 biography uh, uh, by film critic Sean Levy, Lewis learned that O'Brien was never actually paid. Holy- the story rights had never been secured. No, it was all lies. So it's all, still their movie then. Their rights had not been, had left them. So Chris Lewis, Jerry's fourth of six sons, he said, my dad thought he had full artistic license. So he rewrote the script he, he, the way he thought it should be. Began shooting it, got about halfway through production, and then it dawned on him that People weren't paid, Fuck. that they don't actually own this movie. So according to O'Brien, the, the original screenwriter, she claimed that Lewis had reworked the central character into someone more sympathetic and Charlie Chaplin-esque. 
because she originally wrote the clown um, Helmut Dork as a as just a selfish and kind of reprehensible character. I love an evil clown. The thing I'm actually most intrigued to see, because I've never even seen pictures of this, is to see what type of makeup he has. Because you know, there's only like seven different types of clown makeup, but you can change like how the upturn corners and all of this. So I would love to know how they, oh, they did that. I have pictures. I'm going to post the site so all you right, can see him in full clown regalia. Um, so the character's motivations were ambiguous, even Jerry Lewis's clown. But Jerry, Jerry wanted the helmet dork to have like a redemption. Right. You know, Fuck and that's that. hence the ending. So apparently Waksberger tried to renew the rights um, by paying the screenwriter $5,000 of the 50000 that was owed. Um, but And it was speculated that Lewis had no idea this was going on. But other people say, no, Lewis knew that they were screwing over these uh, the original screenwriters. Yeah, I bet he did. So before the, the movie was, was uh, you know, buried... Um, the film's production had even more setbacks with um, with uh, the shoot itself. I mean, there were problems just going on with uh, with Nat Waksberger um, once the filming was stopped. Um, so Lewis was unhappy with the financing, obviously. He claimed that the producer, Waksberger, never fulfilled his obligations. And then Waksberger threatened to sue Lewis for breach of contract. There was a huge fallout that caused Lewis just to take the rough cut of the film and tell him to fuck off. Yeah, this is a mess. But there's never a completed film. And the legend just kind of grew. Uh, the lawsuits and debts sort of, you know, supposedly subsided, you know, perpetual limbo. I don't think anyone ever really happened. Uh, Lewis claims to have retained only partial negatives. And then he told his son that the rest of the movie was somewhere in France and Sweden. And no one will ever find it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is with Lewis, I mean, at the time, I think that's why this movie was set up for failure. First of all, short amount of time after the Holocaust. So you could say too soon. Um, but also people were really skeptical of Lewis handling such a serious topic. Yeah, I can't see him being very serious. Well, exactly. He's just this comedic actor that no one really takes seriously, except in France. I mean, he was critically acclaimed with the rise of French New Wave. Yeah. Um, you know, people thought he was a genuine cinematic auteur. Uh, people used to uh, compare him to Luis Buñuel. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. They... I cannot see that, but all right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, American audiences see like, you know, the Nutty Professor and the Bellboy, and they kind of dismiss any, you know, his ability to direct some a serious, you know, drama in the backdrop of Nazi-controlled Germany. But French, you know, the French were like, he's a comedic genius. You know, I think he's a brilliant filmmaker. Let's let's see this. And the, the fact of the matter is, though, too, you know, you saw his dramatic chops in King of Comedy. He was great in that. He's Martin com- Scorsese. Oh, yeah. But that's that's why he's great, because he has an amazing director like Scorsese. And he's also working against a great actor, much greater actor than he is, Robert De Niro. That's why he's yeah. so good in that movie, like because he's not good. In a lot of other movies. Oh, I think he's awful. But The King of Comedy didn't come out to like 82, well after uh, Day the Clown Cried was was, uh, was Like wrapped. 10 years earlier. Yeah. yeah. So Lewis denounced the film and vowed it would never see the light of day. And uh, so when asked about it at uh, the Cannes Film Festival 2013, and this was like 40 years you know, after the movie, he was still visibly irritated. Someone asked him like, 
would the day the clown you know, cried ever be uh, shown in public? And he's like, no, it was bad. It was bad because I lost some magic. He was 87 at the time. You'll never see it. No one will ever see it because I'm embarrassed at the poor work. So here's a, here's a clip from, uh, from the, the audience member asking a question. But if I had one Desert Island Jerry Lewis question, it is, are we going to ever going to get to see the day the clown cried? No. <laughs> no. You want to know why? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Simply because it's very easy to sit in front of an audience and in terms of that film, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed of the work, and I was grateful that I had the power to contain it all and never let anybody see it. It was bad, bad, bad. It could have been wonderful, but I s slipped up. I didn't quite get it, and I didn't quite have enough sense to find out why I'm doing it, and maybe there would be an answer. Uh-uh. It'll never be seen. Sorry. I'll tell you how it ends. You know, there's a rare glimpse of humility from uh, Jerry Lewis. <laughs> yeah, Which once. I don't think I've ever seen before. <laughs> it's surprising. Uh, but yeah, he... he was very ashamed of the film and didn't want anyone to see it. But you know what's weird? So in 1971, here's a clip from the Dick Cavett show. Oh, I love where Dick someone Cavett. asked him in the audience about when the film's coming out, and he became really serious about it. Said it was going to be completed in just a few weeks and was going to debut it at Cannes. I watch so much Dick Cavett interviews. I love him. Yes, ma'am. I beg your pardon? What? When does your next movie open? The lady from the studio wants to know. The day the clown cried will be fit. I hopefully will finish cutting it the next six or seven weeks. And uh, we've been invited to the Cannes Film Festival, so I think we will open it then in May. Then it'll be released in America. Yes, sir? So he did have plans on releasing it. Yeah, he wasn't you know, uh, shelving it at this point. Yeah, he wasn't. At, you know, at, at this point, he did, in 1971, think this was going to go to Cannes. And it was going to be, you know, have a full international release. Um, but people... People also feel not only the financial troubles, but the distribution battle between Lewis and Waksberger. They're both suing each other, and they, they feel that's probably one of the reasons why the film was shelved. Uh, but mainly, I think Lewis was just adamant that the public will never see it, and he reinforced the, that, that it was just the poor quality of the picture. You know, people have suggested that part of his negative feelings was due to the personal cost that the film's production had on him. Oh, yeah. So after the shooting, you know, wrapped and the checks were bouncing and the staff was unpaid, you know, he spent $2 million to cover the costs. Uh, his son, Chris, said that, I know my mom was unhappy because he sold our beachfront property on Vancouver Island. Oh, no way. Our house in Palm Springs, his boat. These are all things that went away to be able to put money into the film. And my mom was very upset about that. I can understand that. <laughs> but he, in a, an interview with the New York Times in 2018, Chris Lewis said, but it was a film that was very close to his heart. Yeah. And so it was never shown officially in public. But Lewis, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, um, people say that Lewis showed it 
to some friends and colleagues in private over the years. At parties, I bet. That's what I think. But I mean, a very limited amount of people ever watch the film. But they say that the film, that those who have seen it, that very special group of people, said that the film left a substantial impact on those viewers. Not necessarily a positive one, mm -hmm. but definitely a, sustan a substantial impact. So 1992, the satirical magazine Spy, have you ever heard of Spy? No, I can't remember Spy magazine. So they published an oral history surrounding the production and, the, and just about the legend of this film. Um, they, the original screenwriter was interviewed and she designated the rough cut was just a complete and utter disaster. Mainly because she was frustrated about the way he treated the character with the redemption arc. Uh, but in the same article, longtime Simpsons voice actor and Spinal Tap actor Harry Shear offered a review of uh, mockery for the film. Maybe. But he said the experience, the viewing experience of Day the Clown Cried was awe-inspiring. I think that's how I'm going to feel about it. <laughs> he said the film was a perfect object. The movie's so drastically wrong, its pathos and its comedy are so wildly misplaced that you could not, in your fantasy of what it might be like, improve on what it actually is. Oh my God, is all you can say. So does he mean it's like an absolute, it's so train wreck that it's the greatest film ever made, like how people feel about The Room? Or does he mean that it's so perfectly wrong that it's right? I think both. I think right. it's it's another train wreck, complete disaster. It makes Jerry Lewis look like a like an utter asshole, which he was. Which he was, yeah. Um, but I th I think also it's kind of like something like a cult film classic, like The Room. Yeah. It's so bad, it's so good. So here's a bit of uh, the 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 sheer interview when he was on uh, Stern, and this is this is what I heard back then that inspired me to uh, to 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 be, just become obsessed with this film and seek it out any way I could. Obviously, I've never seen it. So, Harry, I gotta. Um, we're so excited about this. The, the, everyone on the show has always obsessed on the fact that we want to see Jerry Lewis's movie. Supposedly, Jerry was high on Percocet. The story goes. Percodan. 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 Yeah, this was the old days. Yeah, and and Jerry decided somehow to make a movie where he plays a concentration camp clown. Yeah, well, you know, he had this chain of movies. First of all, I have to clarify one thing. Uh, Jerry didn't show this movie to me. I, I didn't meet Jerry uh, until years after I saw this picture. Oh, seven, really? Yeah. No, yeah. Seven people I have... Him, I met him down in Australia this, this summer, and one of the things I had to avoid saying to him is, hey, the clown movie. Uh, <laughs> How could you avoid that? Seven people have seen this in the entire world because it's locked up in a vault. Now, what story have you heard about why it's locked up in a vault? All right, here, there's several stories I've heard. Yeah. First one being that Jerry's financing fell through yeah. and that there's about half a million dollars that Jerry owes someone or the production company owes someone, and therefore they can't release it. That's the number one. The second story I heard was that, this, you know, that the movie's so horrible that no one will release it. Come on. Or the third story I heard is that Jerry Lewis is waiting for the right time to unveil this to the public. Okay, this Lewis is, is well, so if, if, he was, if it was the third, he would have done it right after Life is Beautiful right. was big. Um, but what about the fourth theory, that Dean Martin swallowed the key and was buried with it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard uh, that. Uh, the theory I heard was that, it, uh, which is a variant of theory one, is that uh, he had Iranian money. Iranian? Yes. yes. And that when the uh, Shah was deposed in 1979, uh, now wait, but this can't be, because, no, uh, it has nothing to do with the Shah was deposed, but apparently uh, 
uh, Iranian assets were seized at one point. <laughs> And among those assets, because they they paid for the movie, was the negative of the film, and that's why it's. In it. <laughs> no, I don't. I I've never heard that theory, but I mean that might, that makes sense that he never had the full you know negative. I'm he going with pieces the, of it. I'm going with the Dean Martin takes ultimate revenge. <laughs> he just took the key and just was buried with it. Would love it. <laughs> so in 2017, Bruce Handy, who wrote that original 1992 um, critical piece in Spy. He interviewed a French film critic named Jean-Michel Frodon for Vanity Fair. And Frodon praised The Day the Clown Cried. He said, I'm convinced it's a very good job. It's a very interesting and important film, very daring about the issue, which of course is the Holocaust. But even beyond that, as a story of a man who has dedicated his life to making people laugh and is questioning what it is to make people laugh. I think it's a very bitter film, a very disturbing film, and this is why it's so brutal, brutally dismissed by those people who saw it, or elements of it, including the writer, the original writer of the script. He went so far as to say, the day the clown cried is even more honest about the Holocaust than a crowd pleaser like Schindler's List. Or a crowd pleaser like Life is Beautiful. Yeah. I was saying this to you before, though. I kind of feel films that are like fakesy about the Holocaust, I find more offensive than real films like that are based on people. But like The Pianist is an amazing film, deserves to win Oscars. Based on a real person. Based on two real people. It's based on Roman Polanski and it's also based on the actual, um, the I forget his name right now, the, the scar writer. It's based on real people. But Life is Beautiful is not based on anyone. And he's just in there like cracking jokes so his kid doesn't think there's like people dying all around me. It's a bit like, mm, yeah, this never really fucking happened, did it? But we don't know. I mean, maybe it's not historically accurate, but you never know. I mean, there must have been people trying to make the best of the worst situation in the world. Well, I mean, they fucking tried or they I mean, could. And also the, the trope of the sag, sad, angry, bitter clown. It's a trope. It's a trope since the 1920s when they had sad, angry, bitter clowns in the circus. But I think it's a trope that works sometimes. <laughs> yeah, Shakes yeah. the clown. They should have released it. Citizen when, Kane of Alcoholic Clown movies. They should have released it. I think it this would have been ranked around there. When Gacy's basement, when his fucking <laughs> trenches were being dug up. That's when this film should have been released. There's a documentary called The Last Laugh, which discusses whether the Holocaust could ever be a suitable, suitable topic for comedy. And David Cross said that Jerry Lewis was far ahead of his time. He said if he had worked on Day the Clown Cried like, and waited 25 years... People would be bounding over seats. To, he would be bounding over seats to grab his Oscar. Yeah. And so he, here he is referring to Roberto Benigni jumping on, around on chairs celebrating the Life is Beautiful Oscar you know, award. Uh, but, you know, maybe he might be right. You know, the prospect of a Holocaust drama by comedian Jerry Lewis, the nutty professor, was kind of met with general distaste amongst American audiences. Yeah, I can see why. You know? Whereas, like, Benini's similarly-themed movie, 25 years later, was, you know, lauded as this huge success. Best foreign language film. I, I want to point out, I don't like Life is Beautiful. I find it a bit meh. It's just a bit... It's like Boy in the Striped Pajamas. It's just a bit like, I don't know, turn on the strings and we're all going to start crying. It's not a good well, film. Well, I think you want... You just want to see just hours of just Jews in gas chambers. Just, that's it. 
Just like, like no story, <laughs> just Jews getting executed in gas chambers and shot well, over ditches. Yeah, you know what? Or I just want to watch Shoah. I want to be with Woody Allen in that cinema in Annie Hall, watching nine hours of Shoah. Like sometimes I need you make that. a drama, a dramatic film, a dramatic narrative of the Holocaust. So, though Jerry Lewis vowed earlier earlier on that no one would ever see the film, he had a sudden change of heart. Twenty fourteen. Literally, um, didn't he, he have a heart transplant? Well, not a heart transplant. <laughs> he had like five heart attacks. Yeah, he did. I, I don't know <laughs> if this was right after one. Maybe a near-death moment. It was like, I got to release this film. So he donated an incomplete rough cut of The Day the Clown Cried to the Library of Congress. Uh, the donation had one provision. The film was never to be screened before June 2024. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the agreement was struck with Rob Stone, who respected Jerry Lewis, and uh, it, it's, Rob Stone was the library's moving image curator, and he said that we're going to hold this till 2024 when we can actually screen it. Um, the New York Times reported that the only complete negatives of the, negatives of the film are in immediate access of the Lewis estate. And there were leaked material of the film that the audience has seen, uh, provided by a German documentary called Der Clown that showed behind-the-scenes access to the creation of the film and a condensed 31-minute cut with raw footage. That's what I've seen before. And you can do a search. You can, you can come across that. Uh, film critic Sean Levy um, was watching the YouTuber Uncle Porkums, wow. who uh, uploaded a seven-minute clip from the movie. Not sure where he got it. But film critic Sean Levy pointed out that the film, that seven-minute clip, featured the late French pop star Serge Gainsbourg and his <gasps> girlfriend Jane Birkin. Oh my god! Well, I life, never do that at the time. Well, I mean, Serge Gainsbourg was a huge Jerry Lewis fan. Uh, that doesn't surprise me. It's it's very up Serge's street. What a sexy well, man he was. Well, also Jerry Lewis was really well respected in France at the time. Uh, yeah. There was a I saw a, a, an image of uh, Serge Gainsbourg and Jane Birkin at a film premiere at Cannes with Jerry Lewis. And I bet they looked hot. Is that when he, he's wearing the velvet suit and she's wearing the see-through dress? I couldn't really tell they were sitting down. They weren't sitting next to Jerry Lewis, but it no, was Jerry Lewis's film premiere okay. oh, that they were at. What yeah. a good-looking couple. But there, you know, there's a lot of doubts. never been proven, proven whether Gainsbourg's actually in the film because no one's ever really seen it. He was added to the IMD page, yeah. IMDb page at one point, um, but there's no real source to back that up. Uh, before his 1991 death, he never listed The Day the Clown Cried amongst his credits. Well, I wonder if he was either going to be doing the score, but part of me part of me really wants to see Serge Gainsbourg in a Nazi uniform, and that will go straight <laughs> to my wank bank. One of the Nazi commandants? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you'd be into that. It totally would. Um, but there's visual evidence that he was at least hanging around the production. I mean, it was shot in Paris. He's not in costume. He appears to be visiting, but maybe that's the source of the rumor. Well, I, I wonder if he was going to be like, I will do the score for you, Jerry. Well, well I mean, it must have been... I mean, there must have been huge news about it at the time. You know, was, yeah, filming in Paris. He's filming in Paris. in Paris. Serge Gainsbourg was like a massively successful at the time. Everybody loved Jerry Lewis. I'm sure a lot of people wanted to go check out the set of a you know famous Hollywood film director. Yeah. Uh, filming this movie with Ingmar Bergman in it. You know, oh, I think there's probably a lot of buzz about it. So it makes sense that, you know, Serge might have been on the set with Jane. And then, you know, a shot of him in this, you know, the, the, the raw footage, he was in the background watching it. But so there's no, there, there aren't any official details about when the day the clown cried will be screened. And believe me, I'm sitting here with bated breath following it as closely as possible. It's going to be New York. I bet it's not going to be L.A. 
People say the screening, New York Post said the screening would be held at the National Audiovisual Conservation Center in Virginia. A what? In June of 2024. Who the fuck lives in Virginia? I'm entertaining a trip out there to see it. We will go. I would love that. I've never really been to Virginia either. But the thing is, too, who will be able to attend is not clear. Celebrities. So it might just be a very specific, you know, assortment of people. Right. I'll tell you now. Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro. That's it. He'll buy out the <laughs> cinema. They'll all sit in there. Tarantino will be there. No, no common folk. No proletarians will be allowed to go and vidi this film. I mean... As the legend of the film secrecy grew over the years, I mean, the ridicule it received, obviously, from people like Howard Stern, Harry Shearer, um, heightened as a result. It's it's safe to say that the day the clown cried has not received that same level of respectability or esteem as Orson Welles, the other side of the wind. You know, I don't think people talk about it at the same level here, even though I think it is. Um, But, you know, since his death and dedication to philanthropy... In the latter half of his life, you know, Lewis's legacy and reverence in the public eye has grown. You know, he, he donated, what, over $2 billion to, uh, to muscular dystrophy. So, you know, maybe now people might be a bit more open-minded about what Jerry Lewis was trying to say in this film. Maybe. And how it affected his own Jewish faith. It might just, you know, it's, I don't think he's necessarily taking a piss here. Like, it doesn't sound no, like that it was No, it sounds like he's doing a very serious... It sounds like when comedic actors, like, you know, when Jim Carrey or Will Farrell or Adam Sandler, they all have their turn at doing serious roles. And you're like, oh, my God, I didn't know they it, could act so well. It's like, of course they can act. Sometimes yeah. it falls short. I know, I, I know uh, uh, Robin Williams did a Holocaust movie called Jacob the Liar. Right. I've, I've heard of it, but I've never seen oh, God, that. 29% on Rotten. Oh, yeah. It's probably <laughs> I still want to see it, though. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, between, like, Schindler's List, The Pianist, Life is Beautiful, you know, a film about clouding the horrors of life inside the concentration camps allowed audiences to maybe have a better, like, way of understanding and and uh, and receiving the Holocaust and, and, and dramas about the Holocaust, you know, during this, 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 this horrible occurrence. I think that's the thing. It's like... And in 1972, I think any mo- movie, especially a movie about a clown in the Holocaust, was going to be offensive. But I think now people have kind of expanded their mindset but and a little so more open-minded away. to it. And it's so many years after. Yeah, it's weird when you say the 70s was 50 years ago because I still think the 70s was like 20 years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? It well, wasn't exactly. 50 years ago. It was 20 in my mind. But, but this is what's interesting about it is this like, I guess you could say state of purgatory that this film has been put in because no one's ever seen it. Yeah. There's love legends are, you know, are just rife with legends about this movie, but is the legend more powerful than the reality? And that's what I question. Is. is it going to be just a disappointing, just a, just a massive disappointment for people? I think it will be fun from a, like a cult film standard, but I don't think it's going to be, it's, I mean, it's unfinished. So it's going to be very rough and But raw. I mean, so was uh, Orson Welles' movie and, they, and, you know, Bogdanovich finished it. So what if another director, what if like Tarantino <laughs> took this movie and made a, a finished piece of it? But the question is, should the film be publicly displayed? Yes. Should it just be displayed for, you know, a, a select amount of people? No, it should be public. And how will it be received in this hypersensitive 
fragile snowflake era that we live in. Well, at the minute, people really hate the Jews. So they'll probably be sat there like applauding him <laughs> like <laughs> for what his job. He'll be like, why? He dies at the end. He's a hero. Well, Jerry Lewis himself is kind of a complicated character for this film because, you know, obviously he had the ability in King of Comedy. People loved him at the time. He's raised $2.6 billion over the 44 years. You know, he hosted the, uh, the, the MDA telethon. But after the Me Too movement, mm-hmm. when a lot of stories surfaced about these, like, you know, 1950s, 1960s actors, I wouldn't say Jerry Lewis would be as popular now as he once was. We've been trashing on Jerry Lewis throughout this whole <laughs> episode. And now we're going to tell you why he was a genius, but he's also a bit of a cunt. Oh, no, he's very much a, a fat cunt. cunt yeah, that guy. and we're going to talk about it. So definitely as a British person, a European, I kind of know Jerry Lee from, from The Ville. When that was his telephone. He would raise money for the Muscular Dystrophy Association. It was a holiday for Steele. So it, it was. It was Labor Day. They would do a 24-hour telephone. And I remember me and Kessler and Steele would, would usually go to Steele's house and watch it. Um, or sometimes we'd just all watch it on our own TV and talk on the phone. I'm surprised Steele could eat for a week after watching it. There's so many cripples on it. I think it was just the event itself. And not to mention Jerry Lewis, you know, would just be insane after being up 24 for hours, hours straight. Yeah, I suppose. And so he would just say, like, like the clip I played at the beginning of the show, he would just kind of say off the cuff remarks, not necessarily very positive remarks about people. Yeah. I know Jerry Lewis as well, not to be confused by Jerry Lee Lewis, which is easy to do, from Martin and Lewis. And this is the comedy duo of uh, Jerry and Dean Martin. And this is formed by Jerry in 1945. So they did their act. It also saw them make 16 movies together, together for about a good solid 10 years. Well, Jerry Lewis kind of played the heel. Dean Martin yeah and I do want to point out here that Dean Martin is a phenomenal actor you only have to see like um it's Rio Bravo with him and Ricky Nelson to just be like Dean Martin is an actor who has chops Jerry Lewis I don't think has chops (laughs) (laughs) so the act would typically be Dean is croning away whilst in the background Jerry would be lip-syncing or he's pretending to be a waiter dropping plates you know it's classic slapstick it's Vanderbilt The crowds ate it up. At their height in the early 50s, they're the hottest act in America. And they're the highest paid act in show business in 1951. The two did break up, though. They broke up their act. Jerry said he never knew why. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. I think we can guess why. Both would have successful careers, but they didn't speak to each other for 20-odd years. And I think we also know why. During the making of their last movie, which is aptly named Hollywood or Bust, Lewis later said, I wouldn't tell Dean what I thought of him. So director Frank Toshlin took all the flack. So, you know, he's bitching to the director about how much he hates Dean. And uh, Dean retorts back by saying that Lewis was nothing to him but a fucking dollar sign. (laughs) Harsh. There's a lot of mutual hatred going on. Jerry's a bit of a cunt, though, and I imagine when you're a teetotaler like Dean Martin and you have to put up with a functioning alcoholic Jerry Lee Lee Lewis for a decade, it can get a bit much. Well, this is also what, I don't think he's addicted to Percodan yet, but I bet you he he was was on like Black Beauties. Everything. He's a drug addict. He's an alcoholic. They do make the general public laugh, and they actually encourage young comedians. Like Richard Pryor said that uh, Martin and Lewis were a huge impact on him. 
Jerry Lewis is a bit of a cunt and you're not going to find many anecdotes where people are praising him. He's moody because he has an extensive history of medical problems. So he doesn't die from his first heart attack, but the second one kicked him to the dust and he's brought back to life. He kind kind of recovers before a third heart attack when he was 80. Sorry, I have to have a stent put in. And then he's on like, um, you know, anti uh, like rejection medication for the rest of his life. But he did. It was his attitude, too. Like I saw an right. uh, interview. Um, I forget what, what magazine this guy was from. But um, he was just interviewing about his like, you know, golden year performances. Like Lewis is well into his 80s now. In Las Vegas, and Jerry Lewis was such an asshole to this guy. It's the most type of. If you Is do that a the Google 2016 search, interview? It's famous. Uh, must have been. Just yeah. do a Google search for Jerry Lewis awkward interview, and you'll just feel like so much sympathy for this reporter. Vanity Fair classed that as the worst interview of all time, even worse than the Meg Ryan interview with Parkinson. It's so cringy. Yeah, he's and just his a one-word cunt. answers and his responses and how like curmudgingly he's being. It's just. It's like, God, what a dick. Like, come on, dude. I'm trying to fucking a- ask you some questions. I would have been, I would have cut the interview off. Well, that's what Parky does with Meg Ryan. He's a bit like, what's wrong with you today? And she's like, yeah. oh, I just don't want to be here. It's like, you don't have to give these interviews. Like, nobody's like breaking your arm to be here. Don't do them. I would have, that's what I would have said to Jerry Lewis. I'd have been like, what are you, are you ragging? Is it your time of the month? <laughs> you need some cranberry juice. Yeah. Need when- some all. When he's 20, 39, sorry, he falls backwards off a piano. He breaks bones in his spine. They leave him in constant pain unless he takes minimum of 13 Percodan a day. Man. So he weans himself off the pills. And when, because his addiction is so strong, he begins bleeding from the nose, mouth and ears because of a stomach ulcer. This st- sees him like hospitalized for 10 days, but he's going to suffer from back pain for the rest of his life. And he takes this out on audiences, journalists. And uh, during his interviews as well, he would also make disparaging comments about women's in- women and gays. In 2007, he said the word fag on his telephone. He apologized a week later. And a year later, he says fag again <laughs> on Australian television. Well, I played that clip in the beginning of the show where he's like, the cameraman's son, he's like, yeah, your son, John, the illiterate faggot. <laughs> it's like, and people are like, oh. <laughs> Jerry. His telephone also drew a lot of criticism specifically for Jerry's kids, where he would wheel out the unfortunate and he would beg you to pay for them in a cripple people deserve our pity type of plea instead of giving them any form of respect. But again, he raised a lot of money for them. So it's kind of like a swings and rounds. I think it balances out. I'm sure, obviously, they didn't want to be like, you know, used as like the poster child of disability. But $2.6 billion. It's a lot of money. Yeah, I'm sure there's some that were absolutely offended by it, but I'm sure there's some that are like, well, you know what? I got like extra help and care and I got like the turbo 3000 wheelchair. And they're just willing to deal with it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. (laughs) So despite riding high in April, he shot down in May. And yes, I know their Sinatra lyrics. I'm not dumb. After his successful run of films in the 60s, which, you know, we talked about. So we got The Bellboy, The Ladies Man, the The Nutty Professor. And actually, it was during the Nutty Professor, which saw him pioneer the application of uh, video assist. And that lets filmmakers view takes immediately after filming. That's still in practice to this day. So you can't say that Jerry Lee didn't like leave his mark. It's very influential. The majority of his 60s films also saw him sexually abusing his co-stars. Karen Sharp, who starred with him in the Disorderly Orderly. You know that film is trash. (laughs) 
just just shit. I never want to see it. Alleges that after a costume fitting in his office in 64, he physically assaulted her. She said, he grabbed me. He began to fondle me. He unzipped his pants. Quite frankly, I was dumbstruck. I put my hand up and I said, wait a minute. I don't know if this is a requirement for your leading ladies, but this is something that I don't do. I could see that he was furious and I got the feeling that that never really happened to him. So how many women he'd done that before who just went with it in like a Weinstein kind of moment? Well, I'm sure it's a learned behavior because he knows it works. So she also says that after she rebuffed Lewis, he refused to rehearse with her <laughs> and he forbade the entire production by the director and assistant director from speaking to her, which seems like passive aggressive oh, Louis, yeah, Lewis exactly. behavior. He's throwing the toys out the pram. A crew member told her, if anyone speaks to you, we'll be fined. So passive-aggressive dick. He also abused another woman from the same movie. This is Oscar-nominated writer Renee Taylor. She was in her 20s when he arranges a meeting with her with Paramount executives. And he immediately asked her if she was... uh, They immediately said to her, are you one of Jerry's girls? When she said no, she alleges they began speaking crudely about her autonomy and that of Lewis. They said, well, how big is your pussy? Jerry has a salami and he will use it on a girl. <laughs> was he Was he well hung? I imagine he probably was. Because that's why he's such a cunt. Like yeah, he's just got that big, that toxic big dick energy. So Hope Holiday, who had known him since she was 13, but she's in her 30s when she starred alongside him in his big smash hit, The Ladies Man, claims that he invited her to his dressing room, locked her in, and then he began to talk dirty and masturbate. Who's that shitty comedian who did that? The ginger one, the really oh, shit Louis comedian. Louis C.K. I fucking hate him. He did the he's copying well, Louis. He didn't, but he didn't do the same. Like, that's the thing he with Louis C.K. He traps a woman and masturbates on no, her. No, but that's what the same he would thing. do, and Sarah Silverman said this is how it happened. The, the problem is the power dynamic. Louis C.K. would be like, "Do you mind if I masturbate in front of you?" And the girls would be like, "Seriously?" And he'd be like, "It's my thing." And be like, sure. And Sarah Silverman was like, "I was laughing, but I do acknowledge." A lot of like up and coming comedians who are, you know, you're in the, this guy's an A-lister and he's You can't say no. You can't say no. And I think that's where it's problematic. But, but Jerry Lewis was just like whipping his fucking cock out and being like, yeah, show me those titties while he's jacking off. I don't think it makes it any better by asking for permission. By the time you've already trapped the girl in the closet and you're saying what I want to do is get my dick out, that's already crossed a line. It doesn't matter if you're being polite about it or impolite. Well, that's what I'm saying. He's being polite about it. I don't think he'd lock the door, whereas Jerry Lewis would lock the door in the dressing room. Both are bad, equally as bad. So he said to her, you've got a great figure. You've got nice boobs. You've got lovely legs. That's what I like to see. She says, I didn't know what to do, so I just sat there. I wanted to leave so badly. I wanted to get out of there, and I couldn't. She said the incident made her super depressed. I didn't want to go on dates. It wasn't good. Yeah, poor, poor lass. Like. She said her friends urged her to report Lewis to the Screen Actors Guild, but she's too afraid. She said, he was very big at Paramount. I was under contract to him and to Paramount, and I didn't want to shake the boat. I figured I'll just keep my mouth shut. Like, how many times has this happened? It's, it's learned behavior. I mean, this, yeah. it's just like Weinstein. They know they can use, his, use their, their power. power over these women. He spent most of the 70s addicted to pills and absent from the big screen, uh, big screen until the day the crown cl- clown cried. Before we talk about this, like kind of, we've already talked about this masterpiece of the movie, but if you didn't already think Jerry Lewis is a bit of a cunt, we've got one last tasty treat from the team <laughs> at Sickerong HQ. <laughs> Before he died of stage cardiac disease at the age of 91 in his Las Vegas home on August the 20th, 2017, in his will, he had disinherited not one, 
not two, not three, not four, not five, but all six of his sons from his marriage from his first wife, singer Patty Palmer. What a cunt. God, the guy's such a prick. He wasn't married for chump change with like Patty either. They married in 1944 and they divorced in 1988. That's like 36 years of being married. He's screwing her out of the will. He remarries in 83. They adopt a daughter and they're not excluded from the will. I guess the day the will was read out was actually the real day that the clowns cried. The Jerry Lee Lewis's sons cried. They got no money either from it. And I, I like kind of looked up some of his sons. They're all pretty much dying off now because they're all super old. Yeah, I mean, they're all like, I think Chris 80s, Lewis. 90s. Yeah, Chris Lewis in that interview from 2017 was already like, I don't know, well into his 70s. Also, if anyone um, would like to own a piece of Martin and Lewis history, Dean Martin's um, uh Palm Springs home still up for sale like oh, two years later I want somebody to buy it because it's a real mid-century gem it's like not been tampered with just to 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 piggyback on what you're saying about how much Jerry Lewis is a cunt right a couple other uh, anecdotes here so singer Lainey Kazan she claimed it took 60 years to recover from the sexual harassment <gasps> she faced at the comedian's hands she said during a telethon they co-hosted I guess like she was co-hosting one of the MDA telethons and backstage he walked up to her and was just like, you got some nice cantaloupes. It was what he likes to comment yeah, on. Yeah, and she was just like, okay. And then he's like, and then he tried to touch her and she like backed away. But I guess when uh, he introduced her to come out and sing, he goes, and here's Lady Kazan and her cantaloupes <gasps> in front of the whole audience. What a prick. I would also like to point out here that Dean Martin is so fucking handsome and Dean Martin can comment on my cantaloupes. But Jerry Lewis is nowhere near as handsome as Dean Martin. And Jerry Lewis once famously commented that he didn't like any female comedians. Yeah. Yeah, going on to I say... I mean, come on. He's he, kind of right. <laughs> he said... This is what he said. He tended to see a woman doing comedy instead as a producing machine that brings babies in the world. So oh. what are they doing on stage? All right, that's really low. You could just be like, women comics are kind of shit, which they are. Like, come on, that's harsh. <laughs> well, I, I could see, I could see that too. But I guess uh, Joan Rivers claimed that Jerry Lewis threatened to like beat her head in. I heard this because she had some back sass against him. I love Joan Rivers, and I was so sad the day she died. Bring, you know what? The way the kids are dressing these days, we need Joan Rivers fashion police to come back and just embarrass them. Girls are wearing jorts, do you? Jaws. <laughs> what is wrong? I don't know. Joan, Joan Rivers can criticize fashion. She knows what she's doing. I love her. Um, she said Jerry Lewis, when he was a movie star, came on our uh, dumb little show that she had. I think it was called... This is in her... Um, no, that show with Joan Rivers in 1968. This is in her, her autobiography. Ooh. It came out in 91, which I've never read. Still talking. I want that book. I want to read it. But she said when Jerry Lewis, he was a movie star, came on a dumb little show like this big king demanding everything. He arrived late, full of being Jerry Lewis. He wanted a bigger dressing room. He wanted champagne. He wanted flowers. Two thirds of the way through the show, he looked at his watch and said, I got to go and just walked out. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that big dick energy, though. It's like time for me to leave. Um she was also saying uh, in a 2014 interview that she was appalled at seeing how he interacted with a child during his uh, Labor Day telethon. She said he was standing there with a kid next to him saying, this kid is going to die. And uh, she said, I will never do this telethon again. You not say that in front of a little boy who's going to die. 
This child is going to, and he goes, this child's going to die. Who the fuck are you? You unfunny, uh, stupid cunt. That's what he said to her. <laughs> to Joan Rivers. <laughs> yeah. He can fuck off because Joan Rivers is none of those things. Although she is a cunt, but she's a cunt in a good way. And then he sent her a letter after that experience. He sent her a letter uh, saying he's going to send men over to beat her face in. What the fuck? Wow, he really doesn't like Joe Rivers. Just such a, a, just an ego this fucking guy had. So the reason I want to see Day the Clown Cried is because I think that film matches his character. Yeah, who I think he it really aligns was. with the type of person bitter that sad. Jerry Lewis was. Yeah, and that's why I'm going to enjoy it so much. Okay, I get so, it. So I know fingers crossed it's going to actually be released. But when I read that, I was like, wow, this is probably the best birthday gift a bitter old Jew like me could ever receive. You and Jerry, just <laughs> bitter brothers in arms. People, this is episode 929 here of Sick and Wrong. Got some phone calls coming up next, 323-522-4032. But first, here's a quick message from Adam and Eve. Hey, guys. It's me, Stephen. I'm a huge fan of your show. Thanks to your awesome coupon code, Diddle. I can buy myself loads of good sex toys. Since both of my wives died, and my Logaric's disease got pretty bad. Let's just say things in the bedroom got pretty boring. But thanks to adamandeve.com and coupon code Diddle, D-I-D-D-L-E. People, you can call the Sigrong Hotline, 323-522-4032. We do love to hear from you. I'm trying to build a backlog, so give us a call or send us an MP3. Just attach an MP3 to Sigrong Podcast at uh, gmail.com. Um, the first, we got a couple good calls here. The first call, though, I think is very appropriate because I'm going to be watching the game tomorrow. Lions win! Roar Lions, or whatever it is the fuck you guys say. Uh, I'm sure Lackley <laughs> is blind drunk by now. Enjoy it. It was fun. <laughs> oh, I, I am enjoying this. I mean, I know a lot of people don't really give a shit about football. I don't really give that much of a shit about football. But I do give a shit about the Lions. The only team I've ever really liked. I only give a shit because obviously it's, uh, you know, I'm like a Man City fan because I became brainwashed through people I work with. And I, it's the same for Lions. Like, you're a Lions family, so I guess that's who I support. Even though I really think American football is, is gay, is faggy. It's gay. It is gay because there's no allegiances. You will sell your teams. It's not like in England, in Britain, there's a huge history to your football team that goes back like, Fucking generations. You can't have that in America. So therefore, teams, it's they shit. don't sell teams. Like a team won't change cities. Never. Oh my god, that's the entire point of like football on the mainland on the continent. But they, is but that they it's get so players, the though. rivalry. Yeah, you'll swap players. You'll get, but you get players though from other countries as well. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. You're not English. But right. So if we're talking about Man City, you've got Haaland, who's probably one of the greatest players of like the modern age. Also, I would like to point out that Man City has done what no other football team has done in history: suck our dicks, Liverpool. But 
<laughs> he went to Man City because his dad had played for Man City, and it was like that is the only team. I yeah, what's go his play nationality for. though? Uh, Norwegian. Yeah, so it's weird. It's not you don't actually have like everyone's like, oh, it's English. It's the the Chelsea team, but you're, and it's yeah, always but you, been here. It's a, but it's filled with players from around the world, so it's yeah. not actually English. But you're going there for the the prestige of playing for this certain team. But it's team. but the team isn't pure English. Well, are the teams for pure American for No, American but they're, football? They're, they don't have to be. No, because you guys will just be like, well, no, next, because you know, at the minute you're in Oklahoma, boys, it's a but melting next month. Pot, a, a melting <laughs> yeah, pot America. of cultures, and that's what we are, and that's why a team could be in any city. Well, that's why I think it's just kind of shit. It's like your teams get, are sold out from under you. I do think it is lame. I know a lot of people like in San Diego are really upset when the Chargers came to L.A. for some reason. Yeah, and that's and so, it. And, the, and Oakland, like Oakland was in LA, then Oakland was in the Bay Area, was that now the Oakland's in Vegas. Yeah, and yeah. It's now they're the Raiders in Vegas. I do think it's kind of lame too. Um, I, it's funny because it'll never happen to Lions because no one's ever wanted to buy the Lions. <laughs> well, until the Lions win the Super Bowl. Oh my God, <laughs> Which, Big Jer was crying. A big Jer was crying last weekend. I mean, I was pretty excited. We, we talk about this in the second show because Kate actually got to experience watching a football game live, but in K-Town, surrounded by a bunch of Asian people wearing Lions outfits. Some of them had like full-on Lions like onesies. We found the Asian Lion fans in this like backwater um, bar in Gunaland. It was great. It was bizarre. But anyway, tomorrow I will be watching them play the, hopefully uh, destroy the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Fuck yeah. Um, do want to see that. And yeah, go Lions. Roar. Jer's going to be, <laughs> Jer is ecstatic. And my sister hates football. She fucking hates football. And so she's been like, oh God, the Lions, you know, they never make it to the playoffs. So it's almost done. And then they made it to the playoffs. So she's it's like, been so Fuck. A long time for it. But everyone, <laughs> everyone has to want them to win just for Big Jer. Yeah, like, exactly. Make it happen for him. I think I'm excited just for Big Jerry. That's mainly who I want to see happiest. They haven't made it to the playoffs. Didn't or you no, say they 91? haven't won. They haven't won a playoffs game since 1991. <laughs> oh my god! So this is Jerry's big <laughs> what day. A team. This is big day. Anyway, next call we have here is uh, the grossest story. Wait, that was the call ever told. That was just the call, though, just to say Lions Rock. Yeah, okay. I appreciate that. It's a football call. Okay, I appreciate the support. Go Lions. <laughs> it's raw. <laughs> All right, here's the grossest story ever told. Hey, Brother D, Sister Kate. AP. This is Atheist Preacher. Nice. Uh, I'm calling because you guys asked about my grossest story, and I really didn't do it justice. So, when was this? Three weeks ago? A couple of weeks back, yeah. A couple of weeks. Was it before the holidays? It, it was our last, it was just as we were about to move. So it was like maybe a month ago. Okay, maybe it was a month ago. Um, yeah, we had an atheist preacher who uh, works as, like, he's a corpse fetcher, I guess. He's a body snatcher. Body snatcher. He, he works for a, um, a service that goes out and picks corpses up and takes them to, like, the, the mortuary. But anyway, he came on Second Show and was just disgusting. Like, just he told some of the most disgusting stories I think I've heard. But sounds like he's going about to trump that. Nice. I'm yeah. excited I mean, for this. I'm but ready. it was also a you know a rare insight into a profession that I think a lot of us will never know anything about. I wouldn't have a problem being a body snatcher. I think I'd be fine with it. I just like I just don't think I have the upper body. Well, that's the thing. I think. I mean, although he did say some women do it, but he said the turnover rates incredibly high. 
Fuck yeah. Obviously. Which I, I can imagine it's a job where people are like, oh, this is cool. And then when you start doing it, you're like, this is not cool. I think the first time you go to somebody who hasn't like just died in pristine fashion and it's like the, maybe they've been lying you're there you're scraping week, them off the bed. And, you know, they've got the skin inflation and then their skin they've slips fused and you with drop their couch. them. And, yeah, it's just like <laughs> all of that. You'd be like, fuck this. But anyway, if you go, it's on second. It was one of the second shows that we did about a month ago. It's also available on Apple Podcasts. You can go check it out if you want. So I get this call and, uh, you know, homeless fella died uh, he, and he they have to describe to me where this guy is. And, like, give me directions. There's not an address. Uh, he's kind of on the side of him. I've actually a pretty fucking busy road, a major road uh, in my area. And you have to we have to pull up all, on the sidewalk in the grass and, uh, you know, get all our stuff out in front of everybody and uh, take our gurneys and all our equipment and stuff. We're suited up uh, because from from 25 feet away, you can smell this dude. Oh, this is rank. You know, he did say most of the time they're picking up homeless people. He should get like a bumper sticker for his work van that says honk if you love dead people. <laughs> he probably should. For moments like this. Or at least a t-shirt. <laughs> um... We have to go through where he'd cut a hole or somebody had cut a hole in this chain link fence back through a little trail. And he's in this in, in the trees in a tent. I say a tent. He hung up like a tarp. It's not like a real tent tent. Uh, I wonder if other homeless people were like, you want to see a dead body? They're taking people over to go check out this dead hobo. Like Stand By Me, but the really, really <laughs> sad version where there's nobody good looking in it. But I mean, you know, hobos must die all the time. Who calls it in and says like, oh, there's a dead hobo outside? Probably like homeowners who are upset by the smell. But if I was like, if I was a fellow hobo and like, I don't know, say Clarence hadn't been showing up to the meets around the uh, the trash campfire recently, I'd be like, I know, I know where Clarence lives. I would go down to where Clarence used to camp. And oh, I would you'd just want to find out it. if he's. Uh, no, yeah. I'm not talking about wanting to find out if Clarence is dead or not. I'm talking about I would ramsack everything and I would yeah, take what it What does all. he have? Like a fucking shopping he, cart full of cans? Yeah, that's worth money. And is he obviously. Pruno? He's got a top and like who else who knows he might have some nice shoes that i would take very opportunistic you gotta be man this his little camp area is is just littered with you know shitty beer cans and fucking needles and trash and he's laying on this you know big stack of dirty ass blankets underneath this tarp and it's it been it had to have been at least four or five days out Ooh. in the Florida heat. This was in, in fucking Florida. July, I think, or August. Oof. And yeah, me and my partner, we're uh, you know, we're we're back there. We're in our fucking suits, you know, in the fucking Florida heat, right? In our our like painter suits, pretty much. They're kind of like those white sort of hazmat suits. Yeah, like right. paint, paint and decorators. But suits. I mean, do they don't they also have respirators? Like they have like or masks or face masks or something? Yeah, I think they do for the gnarly yeah. ones like this. Uh, just drenched in fucking sweat in this heat. Uh, and when we get back there, this guy he's, he's like fucking covered in maggots. Like I said, uh. he was theoretically a white guy. Uh, but you couldn't fucking tell. He was all black and green, uh, covered in maggots, like I said. And he's 
partially skeletonized in a few different places. Like on the back of his head, where his head was touching the ground, you could see his fucking skull. His hands uh, were pretty much skeletonized, like halfway up his forearms. Like you could peekaboo through the, the two bones in his forearm. Wow. And so, Holy shit. Uh, I can't believe the maggots work that fast. Well, all the insects go. And like there'll be animals coming out like foxes and shit. You know, if that was me, though, I would just turn to my partner and be like, you know, no one else has seen this. Why don't we just set it on fire? Or why don't you just bury him? That's way too much work. You gotta be, you gotta dig a ditch in the Florida sun. I'd just be like, look, we'll just set him on fire. We'll go and like we'll go to Carl's Jr. I'm pretty sure they have Carl's Jr. in Florida. I don't know. We'll go and get a soda. We'll chill out, and then we'll come back and be like, we got to the scene, and it looks like some youths have got here, and they'd set him on fire. Oh, whoops, we can't pick him up. Send the fire brigade. <laughs> I guess that does kind of make sense. And then, why not just do that? But what if you set him on fire and the whole fucking forest goes up? What I would like to see, well, it would be too wet in July, I imagine, for the whole forest go. But I imagine because he's so full of, of gears that if you set him on fire, just he, would, he would just go boom, <laughs> like an atomic everywhere. bomb. Oh, my God. <laughs> we lay out our sheet and we're going to try and pick him up oh, off of his little snowed. makeshift you know, cot or whatever that he had. And, and put him on this sheet so that we can get him into the body bag, right? I I grab the feet. My, my partner grabs his arms, Ugh. and and as we go to pick up his feet, as we go to pick him up, his his knees pull out and his his shoulders pull out. So his his fucking arms and legs come off. <laughs> And then I just imagine all these maggots just fly out of him. Wouldn't you give the maggots like 20 quid and be like, just shuffle him onto the sheets, lad? Please. I just want to know what kind of noise did it make? Like, no, but was it like a splot, like, yeah. like a squelching, like. But like, at the same time, you know, like the chicken, but when you've got a chicken wing and you get that kind of like when you crush a chicken wing, the meat, that's the kind of noise. I'm just imagining chicken uh, wing noise. But I'm surprised like the bone would just. I mean, it's just been five days. Yeah, it's like you. Assu- the God, second the human you start body dying, just D. decomposes that quickly. Yeah. Ugh. So he's kind of, it's like, did you make a wish? At least. <laughs> uh, hit three minutes there. Part two. Atheist preacher. Uh, and yeah, his fucking arms and legs come up, pull out like fucking boiled chicken. You know. <laughs> Now, that, that time, my partner, who was a little newer than I was, he, he has to fucking step out and smells getting to him, even with his respirator. Oh, they do have a uh, respirator. And he, you know, he's he's out there getting some fresh air, right? Dry heaving. And meanwhile, me and, you know, the CSI photographer woman are, are just shooting the shit back and forth. And uh, well, so we decide that the best way to go is to just take the top blanket that he's laying on with him put that on the sheet uh and get him in and and uh so we do that zip him up get him i'm taking back to the the morgue and i get there right and as i pull him out of my van uh just a bunch of fucking liquid is just Leaking pool pouring out of this out of this bag all over the back of my van, ah. and uh, it, it ended up my van smelling 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 like that fucking guy for like two weeks, man. I, I mopped it, I, I, I sprayed all in it, 
like multiple times, man. I just could not get that shit out. Just had to let it air out. <laughs> Anyways, that's uh, my grossest story in just a little bit more detail. All right, you guys have a good one. Adios. Lick my balls. Jesus. Love what do you it. think that smelled like? Fucking like death has a kind of sweet smell to it. I remember like um I've I don't never... think that guy has <laughs> no. a sweet smell. But it still has like a sweet and it's kind of like cow manure. Because I remember when we when we went and did like life drawing, that's like the first time I saw a dead body. Um and they just like had them out on the slab. And we just went in and we did life drawing for like nine hours that day. And we were just draw- drawing all these fucking dead bodies. And like underneath the chemical smell, you could smell it. Wait a second. They were just bringing in cadavers for you guys to draw? To life draw, yeah. One after the other. What about, we were there I all day. You, I thought you draw like live nude people. Well... I didn't do an arts degree specifically, but I did lots of different things within because I did like, um, it's kind of like, what's it called? Like a foundation, yeah. I don't even think they do foundation years anymore because the Tories hate the arts. So when you do a foundation year, you do a little bit of everything. And uh, I did fine arts and that, uh, maybe they couldn't get a live person that day. Well, because in uh, San Francisco, I know a lot of the strippers I used to work with would get paid extra to go to the art college and post nude. Well, anyone could do it. I could go do it now for some money if I wanted. Uh, I mean, yeah, if you wanted to pose naked, I mean, you totally could. But that's why I'm surprised that they would go to the, the lengths to go get a corpse rather than just like pay 15 bucks to some, or 50 bucks to someone to, to pose nude. Well, anyone who knows Carlisle uh, knows that. So where we used to do fine arts was in uh, a Gate, which is right next to Fat Man Tower. Oh, Fat okay, Man Tower. Yeah. And just the hospital is really close to Fat Man Tower. So you could just go get a corpse, bring it back. Yeah, go to the Rose Cottage, as they call it in the industry in Carlisle. Did you ever get the fat man who died on Fat Man Tower? That would have been amazing. Everyone who doesn't know this story about my hometown, Carlisle, there was a guy who got diddled when he was a kid and he climbs to the top of Dixon's chimney, which, fuck, it's like an industrial, like Victorian industrial chimney. It's huge. He was a fat guy. And he's a fat guy. He gets stuck at the top. He somehow ends up hanging upside down. He's screaming all night. No one hears him. And then he basically dies up there. And then everyone in Carlisle in the morning gathered round of their kids to watch him be (laughs) winched down. Didn't they have to get a crane? They did have to get a crane. I was finishing work that morning and I should have gone and looked at it, but I was on night shift and I was like, fuck it, I'm not going. It's probably the most exciting thing to ever happen in Carlisle. One of them easily. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, Kate told me that story and every time I'd go visit and you can't, I mean, it's hard not to see Fat Man Tower because the tower or Dixon Tower or whatever, it's in the middle of the city. So anywhere you walk, you just see the city. It's an optical tower. So I would always, you know, ask people like oh have you ever been to fat man tower do you know the story of fat man tower my favorite is when we'd ask cab drivers because like some of them be like, oh i remember that this song you know i'm obviously not speaking a carlisle accent he's like oh, i'm a this guy big bloke just climbed on top of the tower but then some people would get like really kind of like reserved about it and not want to talk about it because like, they knew him because okay, it's Carlisle, maybe that's what man. It is. Yeah. Everyone knows everyone. <laughs> and if they didn't know him, then they knew his fucking brother or they knew his sister or they knew somebody and who went to school with him. they didn't find it funny that I was asking about it. The the person that I liked the reaction the most when you said Fat Man Tower was uh, Tweedy. Because when you said it to him, Tweedy just like burst out laughing and he was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And no, we don't call it that, but I'm going to start calling <laughs> it that. 
<laughs> well, you know, thankfully, AP doesn't live in Carlisle and have to go retrieve some big fat ass on the top of a tower. I don't know. That would have sucked. It, actually, it, they didn't even get a crane in the end. They did it by helicopter. So oh, man, AP could have gone in a helicopter guy. that day. That would have been so fucking exciting for him. Yeah, I guess that would have been kind of fun. Um, but yeah, AP, that's gnarly, dude. That is gnarly. Um, I wonder, like, yeah, I wonder how you... Did you just take a hose to the back of the van and Eventually. just spray out the, the melting hobo? Like, like hobo juice? Like, I don't even know what that is. White vinegar, man. White vinegar, baking soda, gets out fucking anything. It's like an old wives' uh, tale. It's so vile. Next I don't time. know how you do what you do, but uh, you do it respect. well. Yeah, um, yeah I got <laughs> mad respect for you. Anyone Seriously. in that industry, man, who could do it. Nurses, you know, people who deal with all this stuff on a daily basis. But that's just one of the stories there, people. So I, yeah. I seriously encourage you to go check out second show and that, that AP was on and hear that episode because it was gnarly. Anyway, people call the Signal Hotline, 323-522-4032. We do uh, want to play your calls. Big ups to the listeners that do support us on Patreon Apple Podcasts. We appreciate you helping us keep this show going. Patreon.com slash Wrong. Um, sign up today, go to Apple Podcasts and just do a search for Sick and Wrong. You subscribe to Second Show there. Also, if you want to buy some merch, we got plenty of Sick and Wrong tees and stickers at the uh, Sick and Wrong Tea Public Store. SickandWrongPodcast.com slash shop. Just click on the picture of the Pope. And finally here, Sick and Wrong Song of the Week. Since we were talking about Serge Gainsbourg Whoa. being uh, you know, uh, on the set of The Day the Clown Cried, which would have been probably the best day of my life. Um, but anyway, I was trying to find like an appropriate Serge Gainsbourg song to end the episode with. We're going to end this, uh, the show here with uh, a song called Nazi Rock. Nice. Is it yeah. off Lemon Incest? I love that album. No, it's a later record of his. Actually, that I just found an original copy of. Uh, of course on you did. A, yeah, on Discogs. Um, but anyway, it's uh, called Rock Around the Bunker. It's a 1975 uh, album that contains songs which combine pseudo-1950s musical arrangements with lyrics relating to Nazi Germany and World War II. And it draws on uh, Gainsbourg's experience as a Jewish child in occupied France. How do I not already have this album? And how, like, I used to rock around my bunker. See, me and Serge Gainsbourg yeah, were I meant for you, each other. I, you know, honestly, I know, I don't actually, Serge Gainsbourg records are really expensive. And I have a lot of yes. them that, you know, on MP3, but I don't actually have, I don't think I have any on vinyl because they're so expensive. And I don't want to buy a reissue. I want to buy the originals. So I guess if I, you know, was in France and could find some, but even then, I mean, I think at this they're point expensive. they're kind of expensive. Uh, but the guy has like sixteen records. We'll concentrate on getting all the seventies ones. Like we'll get Lemon Incest next. That's a great album. There's yeah. a lot of Jane on that. Um, yeah, and then he did, you know, records with Jane Birkin. This is, you know, a solo record of his. It's his twelfth record, Rock Around the Bunker. So we're gonna end the show here with Nazi Rock by Serge Gainsbourg. Um, People, uh, thanks for listening to the show, and uh, go Lions. I hope everybody out there is rooting for the Lions tomorrow because we do want them to win the Super Bowl. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be waiting for that. Um, we'll be back next week with episode uh, 930. Till then, take it sleazy. Voici venir la nuit des longs couteaux. Il 
vos bas noirs, les gars, ajustez bien vos accroches, bas vos portes, jartel et vos corsets. Allez, venez, ça va se corser, on va danser le. Maquillez vos lèvres les gars avec des rouges délicats Faites vous des bouches sanglantes ou noires ou bleues Si ça vous tente on va danser le On va danser le Fixatif et corps grané, épargné, ni on quand il farvenait avant qu'il soit trop tard en relance. On va danser. On va danser. On va danser. Could you give us some of your political beliefs? Kill everyone now. Condone first degree murder. Advocate cannibalism. Eat shit.